I should say, on Henry Winston. And um, so we just want to uh, go over uh, some of the organization, where we are, and to make sure that everyone here and, you know, everybody in the free school and near the free school is mobilized and prepared for this coming weekend. Let me, if I could just say uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, Kathy and I were talking this morning, we ride the bus together, the 33, and Blaze was with, with us. Everybody was on the 33. And the bourgeois members were driving. <laughs> More than 33. And, uh, but um, uh, uh, Kathy was saying that uh, it is a positive thing that the symposium is going to take place in Philadelphia. And it's not as though we're, you know, students at the University of Pennsylvania or Temple or some other university who come here from somewhere else, although a lot of us have come from other places, being in the free school means that we're really situated in Philadelphia. And um, that this conference takes place here with the support of the Church of the Advocate. I can never say enough about that. This is a very historic place for Philadelphia, for North Philadelphia, and for the nation for all kinds of reasons. I think you all know a lot of it. The, um, the Black Power Conference of 1968, which was a huge event. The Black 
Panthers uh, Constitutional Conference mm -hmm. of 1970, mm -hmm. the fact that the first, uh, Sarah, was it 24 uh, women who were ordained into, yes. or 18 mm -hmm. women ordained into the priesthood of the Episcopal Church, the first time here at this church uh, under the directorship of Father Paul Washington, who himself uh, is one of the three, I would argue, the three most important civil rights leaders of Philadelphia. Yeah. Cecil B. Moore, mm -hmm. Reverend Leon Sullivan, yeah. and uh, Father Paul Washington. And each of them made their own unique and specific contributions. And Father Paul Washington transformed this church into a center of the struggle. And in so doing, reconfigured the uh, theology, yeah. the practical theology of the Episcopal Church. Uh, and um, those great murals were commissioned under him. And um, frankly, that was a bold move for then and for now. You know, you should know that this church is owned by the diocese, although it is run by a local, what they call a vestry, a local administration. Uh, and, and, and the pastor along with them. Uh, but it's, it's not owned by the church, this church itself, it's owned by the diocese. And hence, to have negotiated back in the 1970s that you know, this uh, ornate uh, architecture mm -hmm. would be augmented, many people would say degraded, but augmented, mm -hmm with this art reflecting the consciousness and the struggle of Michelle Dickens for realization of self-realization of a people. Yes. Okay. That's what you see, the struggle for self-realization. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, you know, Richard Watson told me, by the way, Richard has a, exhibit at the African-American Museum, and it would be good if we went there. It would be great if we could all go together. I mean, I always enjoy going with free school. Uh, but um, down, so his exhibit is on, and he has a, a wide body of work. You know, by the way, Richard is a very good folk singer. Yeah. You know, a great, like he, he sings a lot like Richie Havens, you, you know, um, but uh, he told me, Richard told me, that their first intention was to paint the murals on the ceiling, like the Sistine Chapel, but they couldn't afford the scaffold. And uh, he also told me how they worked. Um, what's, what's his colleague that did the Walter. Walter Edmonds, how they worked day and night, late into the night. Uh, to do those um, murals. And uh, every time you go in there, you experience something new. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was commissioned 
under Father Paul Washington. Uh, his name resonates mm -hmm. with everything progressive and everything good in this city. Mm -hmm. I don't know of a single person, of course I don't know everybody, that does not have something good to say about Father Paul Washington. Uh, so the fact that we are anchored here means that we are not, as they would call it, free riders. You know, a free rider is a person who uh, comes in and, you know, gets on board with a wave or something that's going on and rides it out as long as it's going on, you know. So we're not like free riders. We're an integral part of this institution and frankly of other institutions like 1199, uh, like Mother Bethel, AME Church, and so on. And that's part of what the theoretical practice of the free school uh, drives us towards. You know, we're not, as they, as they would say, uh, aloof academic critics right. of the people, right. you know? And um, so the fact that we are here in Philadelphia and Philadelphia is a city filled with pain. You cannot know this city unless you understand the pain of its people. Um, and uh, the poverty of its people. Uh, all of this is the fabric that we operate in. And, and frankly, you know, we want to get closer to the people. We don't want to get further from the people and, um, and such. So uh, it is important that it is here in Philadelphia, the poorest of the 10 largest cities, uh, a city without a real public education system right. uh, where children no longer can go to school and study music or art uh, or um, and where 46% of all the high school students do not graduate. 46%, which also means that only a small percentage graduate with any competence to go further. This is the abandonment of the people by the ruling class, but yet they celebrate gentrification and new tall buildings all the time. And this is the city with the most lucrative open air drug market in the country. You know, Purba and Chambarta and myself went up there two weeks ago. And I was just saying to Chambarta that I noticed in her face uh, when I saw her at the, on the, um, Lotus uh, Zoom meeting. I said, she's changed. She's not, she's not the poor of a month ago. <laughs> uh, because that experience, in fact, 
I was talking to Catherine Blunt, and I said, Kathy, I got to take you up there if you know. She's, she said, no, I don't want to see you. She said, I understand it intellectually. I don't want to experience it emotionally. And I understand that. Um, so this is where we are. Um, and, and, you know, what, what adds insult to injury is that the ruling class and the governing class of the city lies to the people and tells them, oh, things are getting better. And everybody knows things are not getting better. And so it is the same for this country at this time. I, you know, just to make a long story brief, we're, we're, we're initiating this symposium at a time of the greatest political crisis in the history of the United States. Uh, you guys, because you've only experienced this or something close to this, have nothing to compare it with. So, you know, a lot of it, a lot of what you know um, in a concrete sense is based upon either Derek or myself or other people telling you stories. And there's nothing wrong with storytelling because that's the way that knowledge is passed on from one generation to the other. Uh, but it is this, we've never seen anything like this. Um, you know, it was always a situation where Black people were, if not completely, almost completely marginalized and isolated from the mainstream, by the way, which wasn't the worst thing in the world because we were thrown back upon ourselves. We developed institutions, our historical colleges. And I took uh, Michelle and Sophie to the one that I went to. And, um, you know, it's a hell of a thing to throw a, a 17 or 18 or even a 20 year old young person into an urban, uh, uh, how can I say, a, a city of such contrasts of wealth and poverty and to throw them into a university with, where the expectation is that I will learn something about being human. And I see this university acting in the most inhumane ways in a city that is overwhelmingly poor, uh, overwhelmingly uneducated. And um, I just don't know what it would be like to be a young person going to an urban university with all of this wealth and all of these tall buildings and all of these disinterested professors and administrators that don't give two dams about you. Uh, I don't know what that's like. Where I went, where I took Michelle and Sophie is in the south, far southeastern corner of the, of the state. And it's, it's what you, what I, I guess most people who think of an ideal place to learn and to be young and to grow 
would imagine. And it was like that. And when they saw where I went and I showed them my dormitory room, <laughs> this is where I lived over the summer this year. And this is where I read Dostoevsky. And it was there that I read Aristotle. <laughs> You were hating. Yeah, they were hating on me. Yeah. I was just mad, man. So go ahead, go ahead, tell me what you're saying. No, it's important. It's important to see, you know, that this this was very possible before and in fact it existed. And that's why we look to a specific generation of history or a generation of you know people, yeah. thinkers, values. Yeah. Um, it's so beautiful. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, it's like night and day, you know. It was like night and day. Well, and, oh, well briefly, you know, yesterday we, we met with Lily Ye, um, and, you know, who is a part of the, the China Symposium oh, over the summer. Sylvia, so people can see you on the live uh, You can't see that far anyway. I just, I like, <laughs> okay. I like having a table, you know. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, well, Lily was a grad. Lily was an art student at Penn in the 1960s, and on our drive back, after we met with you, um, and well, I... so they came, they brought Lily over to my house. Oh, okay. We had coffee and tea. Okay. And man, but go ahead. Well, well, well we asked her, you know, what she thought of her time at Penn, and uh, something she had said is, you know, it was, and you know, the conditions ideologically at Penn were even better at that time than they are now. Um, and she said, you know, it was good in one way, but so severely narrow in the other. And um, it's 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 important, you know. I mean, for us, for me and Sophie, it was formative to to see Lincoln and then hear you kind of describe what that life world was like, just to paint that picture that was so real of what a real education looks yeah. like, and you know how that helps you become a complete human being, a complete that's intellectual. Right. Um, yeah, and, you know that's that's sorely needed, and that's what we're going to talk about with the symposium too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because you know the other thing and, and this is uh, something that you always bring up michelle you know you learn to be human by practice mm -hmm. the practice of interacting with other human beings that's how you learn to be human mm -hmm. you don't learn to be human by reading you know philosophical treatises on humanism <laughs> by a person who was really pretty vicious towards most people he knew, including his wife and children. But he's but but anyway. Oh, he's talking about. No, I'm just talking about great thinkers, quote unquote. I won't name names, but you know, um so because and and, and uh, Michelle, you're absolutely right. And Lily was absolutely right by what she was saying. You know, if the point of education is to become a better human being and to become a role model for other human beings, you know, and that's what we used to think an educated person represented, you know, if that's the goal, these universities are utter and abject failures. And our little historically black college, which by the way is the oldest, I think it was founded in 1854, before the end of slavery, right. you know, and most of the black colleges were all founded for the most part during the era of reconstruction, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and at one time there were 128 of them. The vast majority of them are in the South, 
uh, that's another thing I, I, I want to emphasize that even though we were urbanized, you know, after 1914 for the most part, mm -hmm. uh, and a little bit before, but really after 1914, Black folk remained very much a Southern people. Mm -hmm. You know, even when you hear Philadelphia people talk, there's still Southernness in the way they talk. You know, now you get some people like take myself. I've been I've been pretty much whitewashed oh. in terms of language <laughs> until I go back to my roots. You know, what I'm saying? But, yeah. But most most black folk, ordinary black folk, oh there's something that is very southern about them. You know what I'm saying? You I, and you see it around here in the church. The people you work with around here, very southern. So most of the historically black colleges were in the South. Mm -hmm. you, you see what I'm saying? And there, and 90% of us, up to my generation and a generation after me, we all went to historically black colleges. And see the thing I, I have to tell you, see this, this is the, the double-sidedness of integration and civil rights to integrate and you know what is the definition of integration by the way mm -hmm. what do we give up you see what i'm saying do we relinquish all that we have fought for and sacrificed for so that a very small part of us can be a part of the establishment for example, Obama. Right. First of all, he's not a black man. Right. We should get that straight. Right. Not at all. And it's all a performance. He's fake. Mm -hmm. And by black, we mean connected to enslavement in this country and the struggle against it. Okay. He don't have none of that. So it's I hate to sell it's all so it's a distance. He's not organic to us, but nonetheless, he represents that upwardly mobile group. So the rest of us, 90% of us sacrifice, so 10% of us can go to elite universities, be in elite circles, and mm -hmm. represent the white establishment. Mm -hmm. And the rest of us are doing worse than ever, frankly. You, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I say all of that to say, that so much that we as a people have fought for and sacrificed for, and it is multi-generational. You know, that's why people are always talking about, well, my grandmother told me this, or my grandfather, or my father, or something like that. Um, because it was a collective sacrifice. And so we're a part of all that. Now, this crisis that the whole nation is in, we usually associate it in the minds of most people. Severe crises like this with Black people, extreme poverty, homelessness, drug addiction, 
imprisonment, all of the great ills of a capitalist society fell disproportionately upon Black folk. You know? Now, what we're seeing is a generalization of poverty and misery across the board. And, well, I would say Black folk have still carried a disproportionate part of this, of the ills of society. But the thing now, we're not carrying these ills alone. And so there's a difference. Uh, let, let me get to my point. I know I'm talking. Um, so this crisis is a new type of crisis because of the way that it affects white folk. You see what I'm saying? Now, a problem for Black, in, in the minds of Black people, is how do we empathize with white folk who are suffering when for all of this time while we were suffering, they didn't empathize with no, us. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. uh, so, so the question of unity, which really gets back to the, the, the way King formulated it, you know, uh, the way Diane Nash talks about it. Uh, you know, the way Baldwin talks, I'm not against the individual, no matter what she has done or failed to do, but I'm against the system and structure. Now, of course, individuals cannot be separated from all this. And this is a whole nother question. I think Baldwin helps us to navigate that question of individual responsibility. But this is a crisis like no other. It is a domestic crisis. As you know, uh, Biden had to leave the country without his Build Back Better, you know, thing. <laughs> and now that's being pared down. And by the time it's finished, we, I mean, it's down to $1.5 now. <laughs> yes, that, it was like $5 No, it was, it was 3.5. And then... <laughs> You know, the progressives said we're not going to vote for the $1 trillion bill, which is hard in infrastructure, if you don't give us the soft infrastructure bill, which is 3.5. And now the 3.5 is down to 1.5 and falling quickly. Uh, and so, uh, but, and I have a lot to say about that, which I'm not going to say. Uh, it was never what it was uh, said to be. It was, you know, and we know we all knew this. But on top of that, what looks to be out of control inflation. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the greatest nightmares of, or maybe the greatest nightmare of economic policymakers. Really? Because you just don't know. First of all, you know, most people that call themselves economists. Uh, they're about as good as you and I. It's, it's not, you know, most of it is speculation and, you know, talk and so on. These capitalist economies are very complicated operations. Nobody knows everything about them. No one has all the data about them. Uh, you know, the supply chain thing, who saw that coming, you know? <laughs> And this inflation, 
some people could have predicted it because once you put the uh, tens of trillions of dollars into an economy, it produces inflation. Mm -hmm. It's what we call inflating the, 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 mo the money in the economy. Mm -hmm. And so prices have a tendency to go to where the money is. So there's more money, prices will go up. You know, there are other reasons for inflation, but the, the, the central reason is when the government prints too much money and economic activity is not at the same level that the money in the economy is. And let's not forget, money doesn't come out of the air. The government prints it. This is a very complicated money and the theory of money, which we don't have time to talk about today, is a very complicated area of economic thought. You know what I'm saying? But without going into a lot of detail, money is printed. Now, you know, there's a lot of BS about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and all of that. And that's more like a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But money is printed by a government. And a government prints money for all different reasons. This time around, the US government printed trillions of dollars in order to offset what in the summer of 2020 was a real depression. The economy went into a depression, uh, something close to three and a half trillion dollars were spent, money was printed to lift the economy up. And that was under Trump. But the effects of that are now being felt in terms of inflation. And a lot of people, a lot of economists, a lot of politicians, a lot of others oppose Biden's 3.5 trillion, which was, by the way, their way of buying the working class off. Look, capitalism can work. Look, the government can work for you, although it hasn't for the last 50 years. But look, it can work. And Biden, I've cut everything. I'm a, you know, a king of austerity and war. But now I'm going to give you everything you think you should have. <laughs> you know, and the people don't believe it, by the way. But to win the working class back and to overcome the crisis of legitimacy, they were they were prepared to throw as much money as it took mm -hmm. and that's how severe the crisis for the ruling Indian is mm -hmm. they were going to buy their way back to legitimacy mm -hmm. does that make does that make sense yeah. I mean, you know just like like if your parents you know whip your behind every day <laughs> you know beat you down, <laughs> any little thing you do, get out of here, beat your fucking ass, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then you get a little big, <laughs> you know, now you go fight back. And so they say, I can't fight this dude, you know, so I'm gonna pay him all, you know, hey, yeah, I'm gonna give you his $50, go, go down the street. <laughs> and buy some weed and do something 
You know what I'm saying? I mean, that, that's what they do. They try to buy you back. I'm about to beat you down. I'm going to buy you back. So I'm going to make you love me by paying, you know, giving you everything you ever want. Oh, you want them new uh, Nikes? Here you go. That's $300. You go get them. <laughs> I think I might be telling part of your story. <laughs> No, I got myself. Oh, you did. Oh, you bought that on your own. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's what they all say. My mother really loves me. <laughs> but no, don't take it from me. They cheat on me. Both of y'all get mad and jump up. <laughs> but anyway, let me. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll shift the name I'm talking about, <laughs> but um, but the risks are very high in terms of the economy and in terms of inflation. You see what I'm saying? That type of printing of money can never lead to anything very good in the economy, and the inflation is long-standing, I mean, it's going to be long-standing and it's going to be very severe, especially for things that ordinary citizens buy like food yeah. and gas and heating oil. Um, so, okay, so we're dealing with that type of crisis. And therefore, you know, we're doing this symposium in this context. Yeah. And, you know, I was talking to Serafina and Kathy, we were talking about the cultural uh, piece. And um, we, um, uh, we were saying that this is indeed a historic event. You know, you think about it, this is the 110th anniversary year of the birth of Henry Winston. Mm -hmm. To my knowledge, there is not, there's not been a conference or symposium on him that considers him as a thinker and leader in the American struggle for revolutionary change. He is not viewed that way if he is known. And part of the problem is he is not that well known. He's been swept under the rug. Uh, but this is perhaps the first time that he has been viewed as an important thinker. And, um, and then, an important thinker for young people. This has never happened. At a time where young people are trying to discover what is our future? What do we do? Do we have a future? You know? So that's what we're that's what we, we set for ourselves. The bar is high. 2021 has been a real year for the free school because the uh, event on the Communist Party of China 
uh, which took a lot. It was not an easy thing to achieve and a lot of planning and frankly, a lot of courage uh, to do Henry Winston. It's not just, oh, he was a nice man and we want to acknowledge him on his birthday. You know, <laughs> I mean, it would be, you know, if we did that, you know, a lot more people could come. Oh, look, they're saying he's a nice man. <laughs> you know? But when you say, for example, that we want to look at the synthesis of Lenin and Du Bois in order to arrive at the substance, the substantive logic of the revolutionary process in the United States. Now you in a different ball game. You're going from the little league to the major leagues. You know what I'm saying? You're going from children's football to the National Football League. And that's what we have done. And then to connect all of this uh, to, um, uh, to finally the struggle for culture, which is the struggle for consciousness. So that's where we are. Um, I don't know. You or Serafina want to say where we are in terms of the structure and the speakers and so on? Which I'll turn it over to Kathy. Should we start with Friday or should we? I think we should start. Right? Yes. <laughs> and the closer we get, the more nervous I become. Really, yeah. My nerves are very bad right now. What are you nervous about? And don't help the matter. Go ahead. Oh, <laughs> look at Sarah. They get my nerves. My nerves are bad. Go ahead, man. <laughs> she said, I'm trying to put on the front for people. <laughs> she said, when we meet, it's a war. Yeah. Delicate. Said, no, but that don't mean my nerves are not bad. Maybe I said, but go ahead. <laughs> this is going out of a line screen. So that's <laughs> Okay, um, yeah. Uh, for the structure of the event, we're at. 
showing pictures of Winston and we have uh, kind of we have uh, his writings uh, that we bought from a bookstore so we have like a pamphlet display and like pictures um, to you know bring Winston alive like mm -hmm. that those that has kind of come together um, we've written up a little blurb for Winston you know um, his ad uh, you know, his life, that kind of thing, the world peace movement. Um, there's an interview uh, that shows Winston talking that we wanted to also present on the first day. And that interview I was working on. And that's also like kind of almost finished or just coming together. So you can present that to us, you know, this coming weekend or the next weekend. Um, and, you know, as for the inviting, you know, and that kind of thing, we've reached out to a number of people who've also responded, and, you know, to the event positively, I think. Um, like, you were kind of mentioning how you felt, which I felt similarly, that there would be more people might be expected, maybe, just, you know, hesitantly saying, super duper, because we never really <laughs> but um but just so it's just it's interesting to reach out to people and so since that is kind of ongoing that uh is positive um and similarly for the fundraising if we do have a gofundme definitely definitely donate um and a, and a cash out and so but that's been going well i think we're at like two thousand something dollars so that's 25 for that which will be good because we've already submitted uh money to the church so we're in on the church um we just have to submit the rest of that uh, and then as for catering and stuff we kind of got that together um for the saturday um so organizationally wise I feel confident about the event actually occurring. It's like a concrete thing. Um, you know, we have plenty of people in preschool to help clean and set up that stuff throughout the weekend. So that would also be covered. Um, I don't think, I don't know if there's anything else. Um, but yeah. Yeah, the outreach. And this is, we have a week to go, less than a week. Yeah. And just want to encourage uh, everybody to you know be a part of the outreach yeah um uh, yeah no no it's so i guess this is a good moment if that's okay to mention that um we have also been thinking a lot about outreach and if anyone needs anything 
help with putting together a message to thank um, for donating the event or um, cover the event as a presence at the event um, have that and so maybe that's something we could share to everybody here um, in an email that's all right and so the this is there's only a few more days left but there's still a lot we can do in the remaining um, days leading up to the event and especially for the um, GoFundMe and the donation and I think the rest will be also just everybody pulling their way to make the event happen, setting up before, and you know, also ideologically preparing for the uh, yeah. presentations and yeah, then also the discussions and the um, way we want to have the event um, come together in terms of ideas. I don't know if I skip, jumped too quickly into all of that. Well, just like the first thing Kathy was saying, yeah, we we drafted like we're we're drafting like a template for that people can use. To just, I mean, obviously you would have to change it with like your personal information and like why you, even you would be inviting someone. But um, we can share that. It's not finalized yet, but we can share it with people if it helps. Um, so like ask them to come to the event or and also to donate and if they can make it in person. Um, to let them know there's like the live stream that they can watch and everything. So, yeah. Could you, uh, Jeremiah, could you say a little bit? Because I know you have posted the event on Instagram and how you were surprised. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there was, um, well, basically, uh, we had the call that uh, went out that Doc wrote um, for the event. And so, I've been doing some social media stuff from the free schools like Instagram and Facebook and um, I like made, I don't know, it was interesting, I like made this post that was basically like a slideshow of like giving an overview of Henry Winston's life and like why he matters mm -hmm. um, and surprisingly got a lot of attention for some reason, um, mm -hmm. which was good because I think, yeah, people, I think one thing that showed is that people don't know who Henry Winston is, but I think to differing degrees, like people can still, they can sense, I guess, also from how we're presenting him that he's an important um, historic figure who has basically been lost, but they can see that we're trying to actually revive his legacy. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that, um, I would just, I, I, yeah, I may have written the call but I think what you have done with it uh, on Instagram has been really magnificent. I, I mean, God, I said, wow. And I think, you know, what you emphasize is great synthesis and uh, how you've drawn from his work, especially strategy for a black agenda, his position on the civil rights movement. I think you have the decolonization or there was like one post about the civil rights movement and then another movement or another post about like Lenin and Du Bois. Right, 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 right. And I mean, even if people don't come, mm -hmm. this is a, a hell of an education uh, initiative. And it's, uh, I mean, it's done so well. I mean, I mean, you should consider going into curriculum development. 
public school. I mean, you got those guys. I mean, yeah, really, it was wonderful. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, th I think all of this out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if Eddie gets rich one of these days, <laughs> we were talking about different ways that he might get, which we won't mention. <laughs> we'll, we'll fund you setting up an uh, education consultancy. But, um, well, all the black people have been taken down a lot of times. They start out like we're going to help this here, and then they end up like you doing the opposite. Do I know about it? They never seen it. They call them backstabbers. But, but anyway, let me just don't prop them up. I mean, hey, man. But anyway, I think the leaflet is very beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. And I think um, people, if nothing else, it has created a real interest in Henry Winston, and not just among academics or elites, but among ordinary people. In fact, one of uh, Serafina's co-workers asked her a question that I think could be, I won't mention name, but <laughs> but which will be, you know, could be the center of the first day. Mm -hmm. Who was Henry Winston and why are you doing this? Why is he so hidden from yeah. the public? Well, that's eye. the other thing. Okay, that's why, thing. Why would a human being yeah. whose life story is so compelling, just the life story is so compelling, why do we not know about him? Uh, and why do we celebrate lesser people, and I mean really lesser people, uh, and, but then the life story, and, and as we're trying to situate it, is, is a story for young people, for a lot of young people who, like him, are stranded population, probably less educated than he was when he left high school, left school and um, and probably as poor as he was. So how did he manage to find his way? And that's part of what we're, we're trying to talk about, you know? Um, so, okay, that's the, the, and so on the first day, uh, like Serafina said, we're gonna have this great display and um, and Kathy has found some wonderful photos back there, and they are great photos. And I would say, you know, it's always useful for a person that you've never heard of to see photos of him. What did he look like? What did he look like when he was with his mother? And I think that's his, well, I don't know about father, but brothers and sisters. You know, what, is, what did his family look like? What did he look like when he was with his colleagues, his comrades? Mm -hmm. You know, what did he look like when he was with Fidel Castro? By the way, he got out of jail. It, like, they can call it compassionate release, but it was because the Cuban government 
had a Bay of Pigs person, or a couple of them, in prison, and the United States wanted that those people back. And so they said, well, to let them out, the Cubans said, we want Henry Winston released. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's a story, another level of his story. You know, not to mention, we just saw a, uh, a very brief clip of him and Kim Il-sung of North Korea. Mm -hmm. You know, so, I mean, you know, from poverty and being, have, being forced out of school to being a figure on the world stage. How did this happen? And then going to prison, having lost his sight in prison, but then never giving up. And just like in most of his photos, you see him smiling. He, I mean, he was always that way. Very generous, very kind to everybody. I mean, one of the things I remember most is he always, if anybody was sick, he wanted to know how they were. Every member of the Communist Party was important to him. You know, a lot of people think, well, you're revolutionary, you're involved in struggle, you don't have time for the individual person and how they're doing, but that was not him. He frankly led the movement to free Angela Davis. He was the political leader of that movement. Um, I remember, if you don't mind, can I tell you this story? Just, you know, um, remember there was Huey Newton, that was the big movement to free a political prisoner. That went from 1967 approximately to 1970 when he was found not guilty. Uh, I think not guilty or something. And he was let out. In that same year, Winston, I mean, pardon me, Angela is arrested. The same year. And so the question for us, uh, which was a, uh, the political strategy to free Angela Davis, not the legal strategy first, the political strategy. And it would be different than that used by the Panthers. And there was a debate within the leadership of the party over how we should defend Angela Davis. Should we defend her as a communist, i.e. a revolutionary, and hence the right to revolution? Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? But let me tell you, she'd be in jail right now if we had used that, that strategy. Henry Winston insisted, no, we will defend her as a black woman communist. A twist, but an important one. Because of that, it meant that a woman like Aretha Franklin could say, whatever her bail is, I'll put it up. You see what I'm saying? And that appeal to the natural constituency of Angela Davis, which is, was the black community, was what Winston said we must do. And that was him, because it would have been very easy 
you know, in the those heady days, everything is revolution and uh, the youth are rising up. You know what I'm saying? You know, like Black Lives Matter. Oh, we have an uprising. Well, it just ended three months before, I mean, two, three weeks before the election. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So what happened to the uprising? And we're still doing bad. You know? <laughs> but so you can get, you know, swept up in emotion and slogans and and what you want to be. And this is why Winston's synthesis of Du Bois and Lenin is so important. You see what I'm saying? The uniqueness of the US revolutionary process and the special role of the African-American freedom struggle. He knew that without black folk, we could not free Angela Davis. I don't care how much the students and you know the S students for democratic society and the white radicals, you know whatever you know all that they could do and blow up shit and all that wasn't going to get Angela free. Black folk would. What would the churches do? What would black trade unionists do? What would the NAACP do? And so on. Now, there were historical precedents where communist parties defended imprisoned communists. For instance, Georgi Dimitrov, the well-known Bulgarian Communist Party, was imprisoned by the government, I think, of Bulgaria as a communist. And so they rose up to defend his right to be a communist. I think he did a serious bit as a result, a bit, a serious term in prison. Yeah, I'm using street language. But, you know, or you take Mumia. I'm defending my right to be a revolutionary and I want John Africa to represent me. And you see now, he'd been there 42 years, you know. The question is not the revolutionary slogan but the democratic struggle. As, and that was part of what you put up there, Jeremiah, that point, the struggle for democracy. What is the struggle for democracy in its fullest meaning? So this was a very important thing. And I know, and I can just tell you this story. I know when Mumia was first arrested, we were meeting every week, everybody came together. The, the, uh, pastors, the journalists, unionists, the civil rights organizations, we were not going to let Mumia be convicted. And I remember after meeting for a couple of months or something like that, every week, and very serious, you know, we'd all had the experience of free Angela Davis, the experience of free Huey and all of that. And we kind of knew and a lot of us were experienced grassroots organizers. This is not going to happen in Philadelphia, right? We had that confidence. And one day Ramona Africa came and said, no, Mumia don't want this. The Mumia don't want this. I know that was my, well, what does Mumia want? Mumia don't want y'all. He won't move to defend it. I'm not making this up. 
And what I'm trying to suggest, you know, the revolutionary slogan, yeah. the revolutionary claim, everybody can claim to be a revolutionary, but the test is can you unite the people? Mm -hmm. Based upon the fundamental question, and here the clash with the ruling class, people's democracy. And that's why, you know, I guess we'll get into it. The issue that Du Bois raises in Black Reconstruction, the democratic dictatorship of the Black proletariat, but the emphasis democratic. And that's, and that's Winston all the way, all the way, you know, and, um, and so a world movement mm -hmm. to free Angela Davis. There were posters of Angela Davis in the caves of the Viet Cong in South Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Her name was known in North Korea, you know, the Soviet Union, Cuba, a world movement to free her. And then of course, people like Muhammad Ali, people like, you know, Aretha Franklin, you know, all, this is the type of, and, and again, you know, I, I tell this story because I know you guys have never seen anything like it. And to the question, you know, Serafina, yeah. why Winston? Yeah, no, it, I, I it's because answer. of this leadership mm -hmm. and it was leadership. And leadership is very precious. And great leaders don't come along all the time. And just because you have a PhD and are a full professor at some elite university, that does not qualify you to lead anybody from here to the corner. Or as they say, from here to the bathroom, <laughs> you know, to be more graphic. I mean, you know, leadership is a is a an occupation of sacrifice. And that's what Winston was. I'm, that's why, you know, a man from humble beginnings, the most humble of beginnings. And how, how should I put this? When you look at the photos, you know, and you see those men, you see him and Ben Davis and Paul Robeson and how upright, you know, upright, black men standing up, yeah. not leaning over and dressed because the black masses judge you, the masses in general. If you're coming to speak in a church, you know, look like you're coming to a place uh, where, where, you, where you dress respectfully, as it were. You see that, and that's the way they were. They didn't, you know, I guess I'll say this. One of the things that I resent most, and I get this from my mother in particular, you know, men of oppressed groups are always kind of, you get this too much of this. You know, you know they, they got everything to say when they're around each other. But then a white man comes in, 
you know, the words get little, you know, you get tongue tied and feeble. You know, that's why people love Malcolm X so much. He talked the same way no matter who was in the audience. We, you know, and an oppressed group wants its leaders and especially its men to stand up, yeah. to stand up. And you look at those photos and you look at a man who lost his sight in prison as a grown man. He was sighted all of his life, loses his sight because of a brain tumor that they knew he had and wouldn't treat it. I mean, a lot of people would have said, well, it's over, I, I've done all I can, you know, let me go to a socialist country and chill. No, he didn't do that. He said, you took my sight, but not my vision. And that was the mantra of his life. You took my sight, but not my vision. And the question becomes, and, and this is, this yeah. is because I asked, um, one of Serafina's co-workers to be my special guest on Friday because I want to answer that question for her and for so many ordinary people. Why do we go back to a man who died in 1986, who lost his sight and who was a communist? Why him? Aren't there other black men we could talk about? Why him? And that's what I want to answer. Why him? And I think the free school is a special organization, a special group of people that understand why him. It takes a lot. That's not an easy thing to answer. Why him? Because they're not doing it in Africana studies at Temple University. Well, we know what that is. You know, they're not doing it at Harvard. If he's so important, why isn't uh, Cornell West ever mentioned his name? Mm -hmm. Why isn't he in the documentaries that Henry Louis Gates does on black history, mm -hmm. if he's so important? Mm -hmm. The question then becomes not as if, Winston is important, but what is it about those who are speaking and doing documentaries and writing books? What is it about them that they cannot see as importance? Mm -hmm. That's the question. Yeah. Good, I'm sorry, did you say something, Sarah? Yeah, I'm just gonna mention the rest of the days. Yeah, so. let, me, let me just say just one last thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, this asks the question also of where does theory, revolutionary theory come from? Where does democratic theory come from? You know, you go to any, if you major in political science and get graduate or whatever advanced degree in political science, one of the areas that you have to study is democratic theory, right? But all democratic theory either comes from British thinkers of three, 400 years ago or American 
constitutional scholars or political scientists. Here we are saying that a democratic theorist is a man who was a communist from very modest and humble beginnings and who did not go to college. And this will be very, very important as we think, as we, you know, and over this weekend, I, I see ourselves not just repeating what we're saying throughout this time of preparation, but further expanding upon all of that with the various papers that are given. So I'll shut up. I'll let uh, no, Seraphine. Okay. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Um, well, I think this is related to what you just said about where does revolutionary theory come from, well, also to what you were saying earlier about how leadership is rare and precious. Yeah. Daniel Lee Eisenberg Jacobs asks the important question, um, what is blocking or preventing the formation of new leadership? Why do we used to have leaders but no longer? Uh, Danny, that's a heck of a question. Maybe uh, someone else could help me answer. Go, go, go ahead, Samir. Uh, pardon me? They were killed. Well, so many leaders were killed. You know, the normal life process where people die. Um, uh, go, go ahead. Oh, go, go ahead. Uh, you know, some were killed, some were bought off. Yes. New ones were not, you know, as you were talking about, why don't we have, and at Temple Africana Studies, you know, studying King or Baldwin, why do we study Meek Mills? Why do we study? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just lifted Eddie off the floor. He's like, crack the side. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, just thinking about like what you said about Winston, I was thinking about men, and it's like a lot of things in this world. They don't make them like they used to. Ooh. Yeah. But you know, they, some of them were bought off. Some, yeah. Yeah. And, then and of course, the ruling class, the, the propaganda about using propaganda, create, quote, creating leaders mm -hmm. that are not leaders, mm -hmm. uh, the use of celebrity. Danny, I would say this the use of celebrity and celebrity culture, which we'll talk about on Sunday, mm -hmm. as a way of distracting people. And so a celebrity, let us say a LeBron James, suddenly becomes a leader or a leader like uh, Kaepernick, the football player, ceases to be a leader and becomes a celebrity. You know, uh, so leaders are more interested in celebrity. Oh, go ahead. Dave Chappelle has that skit about celebrities talking after like politically important moments like 9-11, like what do the celebrities have to say? And Dave Chappelle has the skit like, you know, where's Ja Rule? I need Ja Rule to make sense of all this. Uh, ja Rule's a rapper. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's like a famous skit Dave Chappelle has. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll go ahead and
on that you can kind of look at from the, from the safety of your own bedroom. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like the liberal narrative about communities today are that um, there's something, how do I say, like very abstracted, you know, like you go and you create a community around a very specific hobby, but there's no real urgency or need or struggle that um, undergirds, you know, that sense of being together. So, you know, the, the sense of community, I think, like among, among like for Black people, but then also the bourgeois is just so fractured. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, like no leaders rise from community institutions mm -hmm. that same way anymore. Or no leaders on that level, that stature. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what do we think of community? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, go, go ahead, Derek. So, well, well, when you when somebody when the model is being presented to me, and this is as you grow up, you're not grown in the beginning of this struggle. You, you just these models come like you introducing them to a, a model person, but then you got to then you got to really dig in two-day life models. You know, in my mind, and when you speak about Henry Winston, when you when, I, when you use the word synthesis for me, synthesis for me, I'm I'm always investigating how much physics is the language involved in, but hidden to those who can't really read the kind of language that that's a threat once that language reaches that type of, of level of um, communication. And then the ideas of the communication that you're sharing. This, if you're not in, if you're not into art the way I grew up into my art form, then if I draw something a little bit different to you, you don't have any knowledge about it. But you got to at least have a model so you can see have other people yeah. communicate it with this type of way. Yeah, I hear you. And, and, I, hear you. and um, I hear you. I was thinking about um, Washington, George Washington's book, um, Washington's Farewell. And I have like a couple of different copies of it. So maybe one of the most important things I learned about him, not the letters I read that he had written, but it was just his his farewell address. And you know, like, you know, where where would the where would the youth go tomorrow if they don't know what tomorrow is gonna to carry them? But this farewell just needs to really be, really needs to be seen by after someone said it should have been passed. To us in second and third grade, you, you know, like that, it shouldn't have been just, you know, kind of just third part. If, we, if we're going to talk about democratic principles or democracy, this is something that now might have looked at it, but he, he cannot. He couldn't have been the only person that made it a made it very relevant, and 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 uh, and uh, Castro made it relevant because he was a law student, but he had, Castro was basically a, a law student. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I don't think he used that to just gain gain other things like just, just do what he wants. He followed those principles. Yeah. yeah so Henry um for me, Henry Winston, that's 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 not easy in the 60s and the 50s. And I was you, you, it's, it's hard to bring those unless your family had a conversation at a dinner table and I might have heard Mal Mal or I heard something my dad and mom would because they always had an international way of, of speaking to us. They just didn't just give us this any old thing going on. They, 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 you know, they said things, but those names are not going to stay with, especially for yourselves. If you don't dig into, you know, remarkable life, maybe Tony's had, had time to grow with it to 
he can present it to, because there have been other students at these tables here since I've been here to present these ideas that need to be thoughtfully thought about. Yeah. And I entertain yeah. <laughs> go, go ahead, sir. No, Speak on. No, I mean, yeah. Uh, just saying that thing about the principle of the thing. Because Muhammad Ali, like, he was also in sports. Mm -hmm. um, but he stood on principle. Mm -hmm. He didn't, like, waver or anything like that either. Um, and it just seems like there's a... Uh, that political impetus, like, that's what was there. And he answered that, too. Which Colin Kaepernick isn't. Mm -hmm. You know, it's with the celebrity thing. Like, I can mm -hmm. just, you know, make my money and, you know, not be accountable and responsible to any people, really. Um, but then it's like the poverty of the situation. That's what you're saying with the communities and stuff. What can emerge out of a city like where we're at now? And it comes down to, well, well, not to say it like that, but it's like, what is the context in which children are being raised in right. Um, right. and how can uh, like their what you're saying potentiality like the agency to actualize their themselves mm -hmm. how can that happen um, and like I think yeah that's true like there's a lot of opportunism true. there's a lot of opportunism and um, is a lack of clarity on how to answer the questions of poverty, of education, of you know basic things that people right. also need. Right. So right. it comes down to mm -hmm. how the ideological struggle mm -hmm. actually functions, which is to like um, figure out the ways of thinking about answering these questions, mm -hmm. which isn't to also tell people what to do or try and give right. out yeah. a way for people to do things that they already know how to do. Yeah. So could you just for you say it's not just about telling people what to do. It's about complete that. It's about what then? If it's not about if leadership is yeah. not about telling them what to do, then what is it? How does it manifest? Well that's hard to say. You don't have to answer it. I mean, no, it's a complicated I question. I think it is a complicated yeah. question because mm -hmm. we're dealing with mm -hmm. the historic moment, the mm -hmm. conditions, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the amount of people in which exist in your particular, yes. you know what I mean, either district, city, state, mm -hmm. country, and then the country's relationship in the world. Mm -hmm. And then you're also thinking about, like, what are the levels in which your institutions function? What is it that you need for your one economy like to work? Um, and to like, well, like what is democracy actually, how does that function? It's like a government question. It's a question of the state. It's a question of like, um, so I mean, for one person to, it, it, so it comes back down to how do we start thinking about where, what's happening. Um, if it isn't also about telling people what to do, then we have to start thinking about what, where are the people at and why are they there in the first place, at least. I think, oh good, I'm sorry. You wanna say something? So I, I, this question, if, I, if, I'm, if you don't mind me saying, is a very important question 
because a lot of people think leadership is telling people what to do, you know? And this idea of, quote, a charismatic leader. Uh, and, uh, and what we're saying is, it's not that. The question is, then what is it? Let me just call on Porter Brown. But that's what I'm, I'm very glad you raised that. Yeah, I really like what Sam. I, I I really appreciate what Sam you know, is saying about what makes a leader a leader, and just some of the figures that we've tried to study deeply in preschool. For all of them, I feel like what they managed to do was give people courage and keep the faith. Um, when you see one man stand up and you know, be courageous and take a stand that's morally correct against all odds, even though there would be consequences. I think it makes you look inside yourself and, you know, realize that you too have the courage, yeah, perhaps to do the same thing mm -hmm. and to take responsibility for others. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say that. Yeah. 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 I, I think uh, if I could just, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Jared. Oh, no, I was just thinking, um, well, there is a passage in Strategy for a Black Agenda mm -hmm. where he talks about King and his leadership, and he says, he recalls this quote that King said during the Montgomery bus boycott, where King was like, he said, there go my people, I, like, I must go after them. Uh, no, that was, I have to catch up. That was during the uh, uprisings okay. in Watts, California. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's, okay. that's all right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, I feel like what that reflects is mm -hmm. King being able to see and to really grasp the potential of the people, but also where the people were moving. Um, and it sounds like he was just like, he, I feel like King also, when he talks about leadership, he's like, not just, I'm not just a consensus taker, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but a leader also has to, you know, also like try to change the temperature. But um, yeah, there is, um, there's also this essay by Baldwin called The Dangerous Road Before Martin Luther King, which I think, I, I was wondering if I could just read it. It's like a short passage where he talks about seeing King in Montgomery for the first time in the context of the church. And Baldwin says, there is a feeling in this church which quite, which quite transcended anything I've ever felt in a church before. Here it was totally familiar and yet completely new, the packed church, glorious with the Sunday finery of the women, solemn with a touching, gleaming sobriety of the men and beautiful with children. Here were the ushers standing in the aisles in white dresses or in dark suits with armbands on. Here were people standing along each wall beside the windows and standing in the back. King and his lieutenants were in the pulpit, young Martin, as I was beginning to think of him in the center chair. When King rose to speak, to preach, I began to understand how the atmosphere of this church differed from that of all the other churches I had known. At first, I thought that the great emotional power and authority of the Negro church was being put to new use, but this was not exactly the case. The Negro church was playing the same role which, had, which it has always played in Negro life, but it had acquired a new power. Until Montgomery, the Negro church, which has always been the place where protest and condemnation could be most vividly articulated, also operated as a kind of sanctuary. The minister who spoke could not hope to affect any objective change in the lives of his hearers, 
and the people did not expect him to. All they came to find and all that he could give them was the sustenance for another day's journey. Now, King could certainly give his congregation that, but he could also give them something more than that, and he had. It is true that it was they who had begun the struggle of which he was now the symbol and the leader. It is true that it had taken all of their insistence to overcome in him a great reluctance to stand where he now stood. But it is also true, and it does not happen often, that once he had accepted the place they had prepared for him, their struggle became absolutely indistinguishable from his own and took over and controlled his life. He suffered with them and thus he helped them to suffer. The joy which filled this church therefore was the joy achieved by people who have ceased to delude themselves about an intolerable situation, who have found their prayers for a leader miraculously answered and who now and who now know that they can change their their situation if they will. Read that last part. Now knew. And who now know that they can change their situation if they will. I think that part about like um, that the people's struggle is indistinguishable from their own struggle is important um, because like I was thinking about the leaders, like all the leaders you talk about, Doc, like from the heyday, like Lucian Blackwell, but Henry Nicholas to yeah. of 1190, seeing the difference between today, or like Dr. Fa um, Father Paul Washington, mm -hmm. who we talked about earlier. And I feel like it's like, actually Father Paul Washington is a good example because when Doe and I were coming here, we took an Uber and the Uber driver was this guy who was like, well, I think he was actually, he was totally trying to get us to tell him that we were going to be the advocate, but he didn't want to ask outright. Mm -hmm. And he said, he's like, so are you guys going to enjoy the day outside? And we were like, no, we're actually going to a church. And he's like, oh, the advocate, right? Because he recognized the address. And he said, you know, I used to go to the advocate. And he said, he was like, you know, Father Paul Washington, he was a real advocate for the community. And he talked about, he's like, I remember when he brought Angela Davis to the Church of the Advocate. And yeah, he was, and it was deep because Father Paul Washington, like you said, he, like usually people don't associate church with politics, right? Mm -hmm. Or like revolution or mm -hmm. radicalism. But for someone like Father Paul Washington, the struggle and conditions and like aspirations of the people around, those are his too. So how could you not bring Angela Davis? Mm -hmm. Or for someone like Henry Nicholas, like I, I, found, I found this article in the Enquirer, you know, those things that newspapers do where they're like, real estate, come take a tour in this famous person's house. And the Enquirer was doing one on Henry Nicholas, this really great labor leader's yeah. um, house. And the article said, this is a man who could live anywhere in the city, Bella Vista, Germantown, anywhere, but he decides to live in North Philadelphia That's right. with yeah. his members. Yeah. And he purposely bought a house in North Philly right across the street from um, Temple University Hospital because mm -hmm. the, that's where his union members worked. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to live with the people he was representing. This thing of like the struggle of the people becomes indistinguishable with yours. Right. And because yes. of that, the politics, the politics, the all of that, like that's inherently no matter who you are, if you are Father Paul Washington, Lucian Blackwell, Paul to elected leader or a labor leader, the struggle of the people, like fully as people, becomes your struggle. Um, mm -hmm. And 
Yeah, I think that's important. Um, he, met, he met gangs. When I came here as a kid from Bible Paul Washington, I met him when my uncle was a minister, but he was friends with him too. But he met with gangs. Yeah. I don't mean like the gangs were like threatened to him, but he went with people through different gangs. Like, you know, like a mediator would be like, and not that everybody was cold blooded killers, no, but he, <laughs> but in some light, he stopped a lot of things. And, and then the atmosphere, the Muslim atmosphere, the church atmosphere, it was a lot of whole new atmosphere coming out of the, coming out of the 60s, 65, or, you know, coming from out of those critical years, but he could help create this atmosphere for something like this could be here. And people knew that pamphlet was here or anybody else that was invited in. So that really was part of the whole environment. And this went to 33rd Street, back up to Erie and Butler. <laughs> you know, it, it went across town. You know, I grew up in West Oak Lane and somebody mentioned Dave Richardson and we know they all is connected with Father Paul Washington. But so it was not the neighborhood, no cell phones. Neighborhoods was like really networked for like whatever better thing that needs to have happened. You know, it, it, we, something had to happen that we did. Though. You know, I, I, I'm gonna say one more thing. Uh, Reverend Leon Sullivan, I went to OIC, mm -hmm. and um, I spent a long, I spent a good time there. I didn't get the job, or, or I got the the, um, the things that I went to go do there, but I was working in the hospital at that time. So, but um, but I met him and talked to him, and he talked to me. He actually took me home. He took me home. To my to to up in my neighbor to where I live there. And, and um you just can't let these people not be a part of your they are part of my life. Yeah. And they're part of the life of a community. Yes. That's why academics are not leaders, because they're not a part of a life world. And um I agree with what Baldwin said about King. King was a part of the suffering of the people. Yeah. You know, because again, this this is a city of immense suffering. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Sarah. I mean, the church is planning a, a concert or whatever to kind of restart their like music mm -hmm. ministry, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And they, in choosing a theme, they're like, okay, well, they're reaching to this history with Father Paul Washington. They're saying mm -hmm. like, we uh, need to celebrate this. Um, I'm forgetting exactly how they they said it. They're like, I want to do this because I mean, basically, that's what this church is about. Um, yeah. And but the question is still kind of there. What does this history mean, and why? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, to the kids around here who. The same kids that I see coming here, um, but it's and in what way is that history important? And you do have to deal with that um, with the pain that you talk about. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. like that's a yeah. that's a synthesis that's hard, and that takes a, a time. But the other thing that the you know the, the the church is like trying to deal with is like, well, there's nobody here preaching consistently every Sunday. There's no uh, preacher, pastor here, you know? So that's like a, that makes things difficult. Yeah. 
but um yeah it's the same it's the yeah. same similar yeah. question yeah 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 actually the third day um the third day became even more particularly relevant because the other thing this uber driver said was well i asked him i was like do you think because we we're talking about um the gun violence and i asked him i was like do you think today is worse than the 70s and this is a guy who also went to Vietnam. Well, mm -hmm. He actually didn't go into Vietnam. He was in Japan on the base. Mm -hmm. um, but he said he was like, I would, like he definitively, definitively said today's worse. Mm -hmm. And I think it's what you were saying earlier in the opening about the crisis, the crisis today that we face has been unforeseen. Yeah, yeah, unforeseen. And it, maybe right. it's hard for younger people mm -hmm. to appreciate that because mm -hmm. like, you know, we only hear the stories, but for people who have actually lived through the decades, today, to say today is worse than back in like, amidst all these wars, the Korean War, Vietnam War, but what's missing is leadership. And today he, I mean, he said it as more like, the Uber driver was like, the difference, the reason why it's worse today is also because young people do not respect their elders. <laughs> but it's partially, it's not just that people don't respect their elders or that there's poverty and a breakdown of families and communities, but it's also there's no leadership too. Right, that's right, and, that's right. And, that's and they I don't see elders that they can respect. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because at the end of the day, you have to stand for black people. That's like right. none of this like celebrity thing is mm -hmm. not about mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. So like, at the end of the day, it's empty. It doesn't really give anything. Let me call on the show. Well, I like this question and kind of leadership a lot because it also makes me think of Grace Bonds and how they're out about what does it mean to begin to see ourselves as leaders of some sort, you know, or at least seeing ourselves within a leadership paradigm? How does a leader think? And um, and I think what Grace Lee Boggs is partly saying is like emphasizing always that importance of keeping your ears and your eyes very close to the pulse of the people so that you have an instinct for what the essence of um, their potential is, what the essence of their reality is. and. And I wanted to say like on this point of reality, you know, a lot of it is seeing the strife and the suffering, but it's also locating uh, the possibilities, you know, and everything that's positive. And that makes me think about King going to Montgomery, you know, and how he describes that at the start of Stride Toward Freedom and going to, you know, the different institutions, meeting the community leaders and a movement being mounted relatively quickly in a way that surprises even him where he talks about the very first day of the bus boycott. Percent participation rate and how it absolutely stunned him that there was so much latent potential that had been released uh, among the people and that, you know, it had been swelling and it, it had been waiting to happen. And um, like, this is a question that has been brewing in my mind so much for the past six months is, mm -hmm. you know, how does, how is history like that made, you know, how, do the leaders of such history, um, you know, participate in that process? How how are the latent possibilities of the people unleashed? And um, yeah, I, I mean, I think a really important place to start is this point of seeing, you know, 
seeing reality fully, the, the strife and everything that is possible, which I think, you know, that is free school's super strong creative hand that no other left organization really possesses is all of the latent unknown possibilities, um, you know, that are kind of waiting to be unearthed, cultivated, and then released. Um, and yeah, I think King and the Civil Rights Movement was an extremely strong, you know, example of that. Just to get to a comment, um, comment, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, I'm Sure, sure. So I guess if you wanted to start from the top, I feel like yeah. that would be good. Um, going back to the event schedule, just because I feel like what we just did was sort of a big reason, just going over um, Henry Winston's life and why it matters for today. And I feel like that's the sphere we want to, you know, open the conference, the symposium up on Friday, which will take place um, 6 to 9 p.m. And then the setup, I think we were talking about would be 4.35, everybody getting to the church and setting up. It's just I like, set up one more time. All four, the free schools should be on Friday. We should be here at 4.30. Is that? Yeah, 4.30. 4.30, just because it's the first day and we usually have so much more to work out. And then, you know, Saturday, Sunday, we'll have more things in place. Yes. Um, and so that day will consist, we'll start off with a, um, a welcome. Um, I think, are we expecting Dr. Dr. Partridge? Dr. Partridge from yeah, the church to, to welcome us to the, to the church. Um, it seems like there'll be some uh, framing and um, opening remarks from, um, yeah. from Sarah. Sarah, Sarah, Sarah mm -hmm. And then after that, there will be a video, the video with the interview of Winston that Emil um, is editing and we'll give some remarks and then we'll be able to screen. And then after that, it'll be a
Khan. Catherine Blunt are working on, um, and then from 1 to 2 p.m. we have- Go through those, uh, the title. Now the panels are, the, 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 the title of the whole uh, first part is- W.B. Du Bois and Lenin, Pan-Africa and Pan-Asia in the Thought of Henry Winston. Okay, good. That's the theme. And the, the two, the three panels are, or the three papers. Mm -hmm. First seeing Winston and Roma Chandra in the current stage of imperialism, then China. Okay, so now we, okay. everybody knows who Roma Chandra is, right? Uh, we should know. Roma Chandra was the president of the World Peace Council. And this connection between peace and Black liberation. And uh, Winston were like on the same page. They were like, they believe the same thing. So that's that, yeah. Yeah, and Purba and Samir would cover that. Then China and Samir. Yes, Purba and Samir. Good. Mm -hmm. Then China and Africa, Maoism and after Mao. Um, that is. With Emily and Jahan. Yeah, Emily and Jahan. That's very important. That's a very important part of Winston's strategy for a Black agenda. Yeah. And uh, of course, now we're revisiting. Uh, Mao and Maoism after the uh, China conference, but that was a big thing, and you know, and we still haven't resolved all of the questions. So this is, yeah, yeah, yes, it is, yes, it is. Yep, and then the last paper will be on Martin Luther King and Henry Winston, civil rights and peace, and this is a paper that Emil and Catherine Blunt are working on. Um, and then um, is it after each presentation we'll have a discussion or after all of the presentations we'll have a, you know, like opening up. After all the presentations we'll have a discussion. Yeah, questions, answers. Yeah, and this, these panels are moderated by Sophie. Sophie, yeah. Yep. And then from 1 to 2 p.m. we'll have lunch. And um, then... It will follow in the afternoon with uh, two town halls from 2 to 5 p.m. The title of the second half of, the, of this day is what is the future of young people, socialism or capitalism? And on the first town hall, which will be moderated by Jeremiah, it's called the crisis of young people is a crisis of capitalism. And we've invited Gregory Muhammad to come and he'll have a video. He'll be speaking uh, through Zoom. Okay, he'll be speaking oh, through yeah. Zoom. Um, and the other people on this panel will be Brandon Doe, Jake, and Derek. Mm -hmm. Derek is what we Derek, said. Derek, Derek. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. And this is going to be very, as you see, they're all men on this, although it doesn't have to be an all male focus. But we want to know. What is the life world of the group that is most left behind yeah. in this crisis? This whole thing with leadership. Yeah, and 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 yes, yes, and and so we want each person 
to, uh, to speak not long, but deep. And Gregory Mohammed will, will be with us. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know whether it's illness or what, but he will speak through Zoom. Gregory Mohammed is the head of the Nation of Islam prison ministry in this part of, in Eastern Pennsylvania. This, this maybe the Holy Coast, I'm not certain. But Gregory Mohammed, uh, in his own testimony, talks about how he decided to go the route of being a gangster. That was not, that was not the conditions of his family. And he ends up doing a serious amount of time in prison. And in prison, he discovers the nation of Islam. He begins to you know, turn his life around. But that story, because there has to be something about how lives are redeemed, how lives are turned around, as well as uh, what's going on with this most left behind group. Right. So we're gonna, you know, and so uh, we want the presentations, we want them to the point as biographical as possible. Uh, and then we can open it up for discussion and question and answer. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, right. Because it's, you know, if that's the title of the, the crisis of young people, yeah. that's the context in which we're talking yeah. about yeah. these uh -huh. questions. Yeah, I hope you have this event. I hope this event bring some young people absolutely. in far and wide. Because no, absolutely, right. that's the big question. That's and we right. want them in here, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely tell your granddaughters. <laughs> Lisa, I know she know her pop up business. She was there. That's a challenge for these young people that live in these block cities all the way around. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. To get young people to, um, you know, just become this right. one of the things. That's right. See, and this is part of the, you know, disappeared. They are no longer, where are they? Catherine Blunt and I asked this question. It is a big question uh, when you just, and, and frankly, nobody knows. And that's, you know, we talk about it in Lotus, the crisis of so-called sociology. They can talk about statistics, but they can't talk about people. Right. We don't know. So this, this is, a, I agree with you, Derek. question yeah and then the second town hall we called the fierce urgency of our time will young people fight for socialism the this panel will be moderated by Meg Nisha or Rishi. yeah i think Meg's still doing that and um the people on it will be Catherine blunt alice me and mary and just on this note like i was just thinking about the immortal child mm -hmm. Uh, by Du Bois, um, and there are all women on this yeah. panel, um, so <laughs> it's that'll be interesting. Catherine Blunt has been a teacher for a while, mm -hmm. and she has experience that I think is important to bring uh, to this panel. Um, yeah. Yeah. This. Um, yeah. You know, in a lot of ways. You know, this is this is such heavy lifting. 
um, you know, when I was with Cordoba and Chimbarta, you know, as we were driving around and, and I, you know, we would often see young men and I admitted to them that I don't think I would know how to begin a conversation with them. I really don't. Yeah, I think, and I think you would admit the same thing. No, I, I, I come from a neighborhood, my neighborhood, that mostly everybody I've known in that neighborhood has been grandkids that know me. And maybe the, the, the older ones that was my age, it's been younger brothers, I still know all of them. So maybe just recently at our playground, Marshall State, and we just having a memorial service for one of my real um, uh, um, friends of mine, and uh, named, named Bobby Reed. So we had balloons, but everybody that came to the playground one day was like people that have lived in Lesser Wayne for like over 50 years. And I lived in Lesser Wayne for over 50 years. So it was a lot of sisters that I know from. This is every block from 18th Street to 15th to from 65th Avenue to 69th Avenue. It was like young people that I know, sisters. Um, so it was a lot of them. It was a lot of them. And maybe we yeah. See, the thing is, I ask this question, Barry, you know, because so much of transformative action is the ability to communicate. That's what yeah. Baldwin was saying in that thing of leadership. King could communicate. It's very extraordinary. <laughs> yes, that's right. You don't know, and, and we don't know yet whether the least of us can hear us. Mm -hmm. We just don't know. I mean, you know, the, the, this oppressive, this oppression is deeper, more ruthless and more violent than any of us sitting around here can imagine. Yeah, I mean, really so much so that there are people who are so alienated from really other people or many other people, one, there is a lack of trust. Yeah. A huge lack of trust. If I don't know you, if I didn't grow up with you, I don't trust you. Then there is the problem of language where the schools have just shut down, don't even consider you know, one of the things that when you go to school, you learn language, sure. you learn communication. There are many young people who don't, you'd be surprised, just like with, they can't hear, they don't want to, like we're speaking another language, like we're speaking another language that can, I mean, almost, I don't mean to, expand it or make it more than it is. But there are people who only can really communicate with the people nearest to them. They don't, so even an organization like the Nation of Islam, which is known in, in its history of going to the most oppressed, most degraded and lifting them up, you know? I don't know, and this is something I'd like to ask uh, Brother Gregory Muhammad, uh, even Jerome Muhammad, uh, 
do they have the ability to talk or communicate with really the, the most marginalized of our community? We don't, we don't yet know. I know that I, oh, let me just say one last thing, Derek. I know that I feel severely limited. I know that growing up, I didn't feel the same way, you know? But today I feel severely limited in whether or not there's some young men and even young women that I'm able to communicate with. Go ahead, Derek, I'm sorry. So, uh, um, I might, I've been visiting a friend of mine. I, I was telling you earlier, he has a, a mass jizz up on Reed Avenue. It don't mean that I don't know people in the temple too. It's this relationship. But it, it, I was gonna say illiteracy and the damage yeah. that we're talking about, yeah. the damages and the conflict for illiteracy. It ain't yeah. because yeah. they can't read or write. That's what has been done to you. Can look at each of yourself. A lot of people trying to make read or write, Derek. A lot. Let me just say, a lot of these young people cannot read or write. We have to admit this. They can be on the campus, and they can't make no sense out. They live in the neighborhoods. They say they can't make no sense out where they. Right. And then you got people that live in the black communities who have lived here. It's that it's that communication that provides where they're at. But it might not provide where you're at for your dinner. So, so yeah. if I go someplace, yeah. if I go yeah. in the temple or I go into the masjid, yeah. it's temple yeah. and it's masjid. Just yeah. like a masjid, masjid is a mosque. Same yeah. thing, but yeah. I have to still use it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I'm saying that it's a different thing, different than me speaking to the brothers. I, I, I'm gonna give them a greeting. So I'll just say, how you doing? But that difference of the, the illiteracy that got our neighbor, got our neighborhoods and. Um, trying to reconfigure people without literacy, yeah. without, you know, this is, without this is, so, the harm. Yeah, that may I just harm. introduce you, may I interrupt you, what you've hit on, and we have to take this into account as we go forward, huge illiteracy. If you talk to Catherine Blunt, who was a school teacher, in fact, she's an English language specialist. We just, I mean, the magnitude of this suffering and how without literacy, your world is so narrowed down and your things that you, that you can understand and be concerned about are so narrowed down that even the person himself herself has to wonder, am I a part of all this? this you, you know what I'm saying? You can imagine. I mean, we face, and this is the result of a ruthless ruling class. We face obstacles and challenges that I don't think we faced back in the days. I really don't. And that's what the uh, Uber driver was saying uh, to uh, Emily. Uh, and, uh, hey, man. I don't, I mean, even the people, we don't know, we don't understand all that has happened and its impact upon individuals, especially the young generation. We don't know. I'm sorry, Derek, I have you. Know, if, I could, if I didn't have communication with all the people that I know, 
they're not here and coming to the brain, but it don't mean that I don't know. And it don't mean that because I'm telling how many people that I've been with in the last month or so that I've been to been some parties for some people in my neighborhood, but just the idea that I neighborhood for almost like almost over 60 years, I can see some of the people that's still alive, but I also yeah. know. I also know how many people names I can write down on that wall right here that I know that died. Yeah, from, but see, from, but from you're lucky room. that your community to extent is still in. There's some no. intactness. No. Everybody don't have that. No, well, that, it don't and, mean and you know, no. look, when you see all of this abandonment, like you'll see a few blocks from here, that's not just a physical abandonment. Yeah. That's an abandonment of humanity. It's, you know, I can tell you, sometimes I lay in my bed and wonder, how could this, first of all, what kind of ruling class would do this to its own people? The second thing is, and this is Glenn Ford's question, the nature of the black misleadership class. We've had black mayors, black head of city council, black head of the police, black head of the school board, black everything, and everything has gotten worse for black people. So what, so here, so this, because, this is back to the question of leadership. Yes. What is leadership yes. in this time of crisis? And, you know, one of the questions I, you know, we, we don't have to answer it now. And, and you know, I you just hate to even think this. Yeah. You just hate to even think this. Are there people who in the short run will be left behind? You don't even want to think it. Um, no, we're, we're dealing Let me give, can I just tell you another story just to give an example? That's why I want to do, you know, a free school sociological tour of Philadelphia. Just take Diamond Street. If you walk on Diamond Street, let us say from 22nd Street down to the Church of the Advocate, you will see the remnants of some spectacular architecture. I can show it to you. You won't recognize it often in its current form as spectacular, as of a dignified uh, part of the city's history. But you'll see this spectacular building and you can tell it's spectacular because of its unusual entrance way. And that was always in Philadelphia architecture, you know, that was a sign of upwardness, of, of a bourgeois status, the entranceway often, you know? And I walk, I'm walking down, because I'm like Derek, I've walked these streets all my life to a certain extent, and you see the change. And I'm saying, well, here's this house, but why is, why is an abandoned lot next to it? I mean, why, who allowed a house 
that was probably as spectacular in its architecture as the one that's still standing, who allowed the other house to be destroyed? And who is responsible for that policy? I mean, it's so, and then even I can tell you all, I mean, at a certain point, I mean, Diamond Street used to be a, a thoroughfare. And that's when black folk didn't live on Diamond Street. And that wasn't all that long ago. So you can imagine this street, let's say from Broad Street to uh, uh, 20, 22nd Street, a thoroughfare in the middle of which is a spectacular structure called the Church of the Advocate. Now, no, pretty much no black people lived on Diamond Street. There were Germans, there were Jews, there were Irish people. But then there were black people living in the little streets. Now, of course they didn't live in the most expensive houses, but they lived in the little street. But yet they lived in a area that was defined by a certain level of urban beauty. Who let this go to this level? And why? You, you, did, you understand what? And now the people who have left, let's say little children coming up 75 years ago, they would live on a little street. They may have gone to the Church of the Advocate or a, a, a Baptist church somewhere with their mother and grandmother and so on, but yet they walk down Diamond Street. Mm -hmm. They see white people and black people dressed up, people going places, doing things. A kid growing up in this neighborhood today, that child doesn't see that type of urban beauty. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? What happens to the human mind, the child's mind, when everything around them has collapsed and they know it's not their fault? This is what we're faced with. It's just, you know, we talk about culture and art. What you see, the mirror, what you see. And this, this is kind of, uh, what we're and then those who are left totally behind, mm -hmm. the third generation of left behinds, that just the third generation mm -hmm. of people who have been left behind, they're further behind than their grandparents, yeah. further behind, and the generation after that will be further behind, unless. We talk about capitalism or socialism. And we should also say, when we say socialism, we're talking about a great democratic revolution. We're not talking about something of a few ultra left that's going out blowing up a building. You know, I'm serious. Well, I'll be very frank with you. And I have to be very frank right now because of the crisis of move. Let me tell you what move strategy was. And they can't tell me nothing. I say it on the, on this 
live stream. If they got some problem, they can step to me. Moves whole tactic and strategy was to attack every democratic institution of the people, to attack the people and then call it revolution and then to garner the support of every far, uh, far left white organization who declared MOVE is the revolutionary vanguard of Black people. Look, man, this is why Henry Winston is so important. Strategy for freedom, yeah. not strategy to break down and destroy Black folk. Yeah. Right. You know, and I, I'll tell you, I'm a little emotional because I can't forget it. I saw it. I was targeted by it. You understand? And I, I'm not jiving. It's targeted. You know, we're having little demonstrations and, and here they come attacking us. I'm saying, we're fighting against the war in Vietnam. Why are you attacking us? You see, but now, like they say, what goes around comes around. And what you do at night comes out in the day. So what they were doing to the children in MOVE was reflected in their treatment of ordinary Black people. No. It set us back in the city. You know, of course, with Mumia, we, we rose to his defense. The black community, very skeptical, very hard. Why? Support Mumia, don't support Move. Even the bombing, we now are coming to understand that John Africa, the narcissist and mentally ill man that he was, said, let's all die in this fire, and this will trigger a world uprising. This is what I'm talking you know, You know, in a certain so I like I, I was saying to, I say to Sarah and, um, and um, Kathy, you know, I got to tell stories because there's no way that you could know. I mean, I'm talking, it's not like I'm making this. When you see, when it's all about you mm. and only about you, you're not a revolutionary. Right. That's not a revolutionary. But then here comes the far ultra left. And you, you all always hear me denouncing Trotskyism and ultra leftism and all. In fact, one of the reasons that Samir's mother and I are so tight because I kept him out of jail. <laughs> and he still got tendencies. I've noticed it, man. <laughs> he, was, he was about ready to go, you know, for some bullshit. But, yeah, but you see, that always looks like more than it is. I know there's a young woman that comes to free school. She couldn't understand. Well, what about this? I said, look. I don't like Delbert Africa. 
when he get out of jail, he and I gonna have to have a man-to-man -man conversation about what he did when he was out here. You understand? But when he got out, he was very ill. And I said, no, I can't. Say what? He was in jail about 42 years. Yeah, but hold it. But, but see, I ain't forgot. <laughs> yeah, I know I didn't forget because see, I didn't consider it. Let, let's be real. Let's be real. It wasn't just attacking me, but you attack those people out on Osage Avenue and call them all kind of dirty names. They ain't did nothing to you. You understand? And you did attack them. So it wasn't just, but this young woman, she, you know, well, you know, can't you? I said, I can forgive, but I have not forgotten. I have not forgotten. And this is part really today of the fabric, political and ideological fabric of Philadelphia. Yeah. People are skeptical. Mm -hmm. You'd be surprised. We collectively experience them. And now we're coming to know lie after lie after lie. Like um, Cindy Lou and the people from Food Not Bombs said, said, we feel we were used and lied to. You know, I mean, it's, it's I mean, you know, and I just, I just say all of this, look, you know, whether you get fame or not, because it's not about fame anyway. Principle, be principle. Being principled is never a deficit. You know, you never lose when you're principled. You understand? You might not be popular, but you never lose because, and this is this is this the pattern of life, the pattern of events that ultimately BS is revealed. What you do at night comes be known in the day, even the American ruling class. But in the case of Moody, they presented themselves as the ultimate revolutionaries and were the ultimate counter-revolutionaries. That's what they were. I knew it. I kept my mouth shut about the Move 9 and Velvet and them because they were in jail. I felt unjustly in prison. I never, uh, I never, you know, aired any of my criticisms of Mumia. And those of us in this movement over the long haul have criticisms. I mean, real criticisms. You know, we felt that we could have saved Mumia from going to jail. We felt we could have done it. But people came, no, he don't want this. He want Move to give to lead his thing. He want John Africa to represent. What do the people? You have you haven't you, you said I should not be involved in anymore. Uh, go go ahead. Then, then uh, Michelle and then Jay. No, I was just going to say that the um, Father Paul Washington has a chapter on me. That's right. Biography. And yeah. 
talks about how at first he's sympathetic to the organization because they seem to ask for very ordinary and reasonable, um, you know, things. Uh, like, uh, they had a few points. Um, oh, good. I'm glad you can. For example, um, you know, a, a real education, um, real justice. No. I disagree with Father One. They never asked for any of those things. Wow. No. What they said. Oh, I'm sorry, but go, I don't want to. Well, well, the point that I wanted to make is um, like he details his history of interactions with me. Yeah. And he says that um, he went over from North to West Philadelphia one day when there was an altercation between the police and the meeting house. And um, the police asked the Africas to surrender their weapons and they said they would if they brought Chucky, like Chuck Africa from prison to, and showed him that, you know, he was alive. And so the police did that. And um, Father Paul Washington said, the police are out there and Chuck is there and he's fine. And then Delbert Africa said, oh, that's not enough. We want him released before we surrender our weapons. And, and Father Paul Washington says that was his turning point when he said he felt like a fool, he felt betrayed and he walked out and he said, um, the, the police had said to him like, you don't know these people like I do. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just a testament to, you know, what their relationship to the people was. You have to have seen it to believe it. And so just what you described, you know, yeah, that sense of betrayal where because they felt that only move had the truth, that they didn't have to be honest with anybody. Go ahead, I remember something you had said about move a while ago was that they sucked a lot of political oxygen out from the atmosphere. And that's something that I really hold on to because it's been a long time. It's been like 50 years. Since Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think, you know, with the crisis that they're in, a lot will change and maybe like the next five yeah. years. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of young people, your generation, were irreparably damaged by their seeing MOVE as the model of revolutionary resistance. Am, am I, would you, would you agree with me, Samir? You know, irreparably. Oh, go, go ahead, go ahead. And the political career of the young activists. Yeah, we were talking about some uh, last week, Samir and I. We can name names and you can almost uh, see a genealogy from move to them and their, um, uh, how would you say, reckless behavior to the fact that then you, you, you don't even know where they are today in the movement, you know? I mean, it's, you can, and of course, again, the role of the far left, you know? And uh, yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And of course, you know, there's always, and, and, and Jake and Serafina can, you know, there's always this thing of, um, oh, the free school is just sitting around talking. Uh, well, I think you all should have done a little more talking. <laughs> because this, see, unclarity 
is either naivete and lack of experience, or it's the work of agent provocateurs. Now, you guys probably haven't seen a lot of that. I lived with it. I had to manage and navigate it. But, oh, it is demoralizing. And um, now, and you're right, Father Washington. What does it mean if you, if you attack people fighting against the war in Vietnam? What does it mean if Angela Davis is coming to a church to speak and you, Delbert Africa, say, we don't want no communists here? Now, yeah. uh, I heard it with my own ears. I was right there. You understand? Thuggish behavior. You know, I'm like, I'm like about uh, 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 Jeremiah's size and I had, I had no, I wasn't like that. I'm more like that now in terms of that <laughs> than I was then. And just, you know, for Kat to come up on us with that thug and see, first of all, have that mindset. Right, right. When everybody else is, you know, the people come on in and, you know, and the people and we have to be modest and humble. And you gonna come with that thug thing that's why I said when he got out of jail, I wanted to just say, hey, man, remember me? <laughs> Let's talk. I, I'm not in a, you know, we've done all of that, but let's talk. I want to know why. Why? You understand? For my own clarity. You know, I forgive you, maybe, but I've not forgotten. And you are a symbol of a strategy that is wrong. And they have misled a whole generation of young activists in this city. And then you throw in Garveyism and a whole lot of other red, all this kind of stuff. Never find a way out of the crisis. Never have a political strategy. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Jay, go ahead. No, I'm sorry, go ahead, Samantha. Um, I think Upton Sinclair has this quote where he says, uh, when fascism comes to the shores of America, it'll be carrying a Bible and a cross. Mm -hmm. And that sort of means like, you know, when Nazism comes to America, it won't have a German aesthetic, obviously. Mm -hmm. So when Bolshevism comes to the United States, it's not gonna have like, you know, oh, let's all wave red flags. Like that's not what communism looks like. And uh, you know, one of the criticisms people make of uh, street tactics is that it's uh, they call it LARPing, live action role play. That's just the internet lingo, but it's just like you are pretending to be a revolutionary. And it's, uh, you know, especially with MOVE, because the problem with MOVE is a lot of the white uh, surrounding circle, like suit, and uh, you can see that for sure. Um, and uh, what they'll say is like, oh, well, we're fighting for the black community. What are you doing? You know, I have the moral authority. Um, you know, I get to tell you what an activist does. You're not doing shit for the black community. I'm from the black community. 
or you know, if you're a white person, you're saying, "Oh, I'm, uh, my comrades and I are doing this and that." The black community, but it's a, a it's an it's an escape into an, an individualist adventure, yeah. and yeah. it's yeah. very individualistic. And it comes out in after street actions, people will drink and smoke and have sex together. And so there's a uh, free spirit. There's an individualism of a free spirit. And, you know, the weathermen would have the weathermen rot where they all gave each other syphilis. Cause what? Yo! I, I didn't, I didn't go to that. And I was down in that. Place. I didn't even know it was that. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, so they had to stop, you know, okay, you have to have sex with just your partner, not just everybody. And, um, yeah, just reckless behavior, and you know, so this uh, this this individualism comes out today in in that those sorts of environments. Yeah, yeah, it is a a, a light world, and um, you know, I've been following the podcasts and the blogs on Move, and one uh, young guy, his name is Kevin Price. And I knew him. I didn't, I never knew he was a move supporter and that close to literally a move member. And he broke with them, and now he's revealing so much. But what is very apparent is that he grew up in the suburbs, and uh, he read something by Mumia about move, and he comes to Temple, and he wants to be. Uh, an anti-racist revolutionary. And what appears to be the revolutionary spirit in the black community to him, that's why to him and his life and his experience was moved. Not the free school, not or take like myself. To him, you know, I was a, uh, a moderate, uh, an integrationist, you know what I'm saying? Really. And I, I would say I knew he and his wife. I didn't know of their involvement to that extent. But he's trying to work it out. What happened and how could I have fallen for something like this? You know? And part of the answer is, at 17 years old, you didn't know you're behind from a hole in the ground, and you, but you knew so much that nobody could tell you anything. That was the problem. And to have this, what you think, see what they also said, oh, this is the successor to the Black Panther Party. Oh, we've read about Fred Hampton. We've read about Huey Newton. And John Africa has taken Huey Newton and Fred Hampton to another level of revolutionary sacrifice and struggle. And then they move, was prepared to do long periods in the penitentiary, or at least they thought they were. Because now it comes out that while they were doing those long bits, they started having second thoughts, you know? And when they got out, they were singing a somewhat different tune. And, but see, what none of them have said publicly 
we apologize to the people. Mm -hmm. Our example is not the one you should have followed. Mumi is going to have to say that. I often tell you all the story. You know, when I was over, me and my friend, we were over at my friend's house drinking wine and other things. And then, which I won't do. <laughs> um, I said to Mumi, I said, Mumi, why are you effing with those MFs? Talking about Mumi. He said, man, they, they, um, they love me in the mood. I said, man, come on. But see, I thought Mumi was still like us, you know, like he was a Black Panther, I'm a communist, you know, we all you know, role in the same ideological space. I'm thinking, but he done transitioned into something else that was completely different from everything and all the principles upon which we had fought and continued to fight. You understand? And I'm saying to myself, how could you fall for something like this? How could you fall for that? And I, I still would ask him, Hey, Dig, man, how did you fall for that? I asked like uh, Mike Africa Sr. and Mike Africa Jr. and his, his wife, when are you going to apologize to the people? So, so tell me what you said. I just said they're taking advantage of Jamie. I was like the thing because it's the movie that Mike Africa came out mm -hmm. with and whatever. Oh, yeah, the HBO. I don't know. It's just strange. No, it. They have to. I mean, they can't just walk away from it. It ain't just two people that are now the leaders of move that are responsible for everything. Mm -hmm. Somebody gonna have to say we misled the people. We're sorry. Mm -hmm. They did wrong. You understand what I'm saying? And uh, they are responsible for a lot of things, including killing people, brutalizing people, the, um, the abuse of children. Mm -hmm. I, I heard the testimony of June, who was Pixie Africa back there. I know her mother and father well. You know what I'm saying? When she was 13, Moog told her, you have to have your baby, you can't go to the hospital. And it was all of this tearing and never yeah, hospitalized. And they were put on a pedestal. And you know that—that's what I'm, I'm just saying. I, I don't know what I don't, I'm going off a little bit. But go, go ahead, Sabine. There was this event in uh, or a live stream event about uh, the survivors speak out that uh, um, John Fernandez organized. It just made me, you know, think about you know the purpose of organizations and holding people accountable. And you know, when this kind of shit happens. Uh, the organization just falls apart and everyone walks away and it's just like, all right, well, that didn't work. Yeah, I got to come up with another name, yeah. another banner. Yeah, yeah, we got to make another Facebook group. And 
It has to be, there has to be accountability in these organizations, no especially for sexual assault and sexual assault victims, no because you can't just walk away and have these abusers walk to other organizations no or like, you know, these people have a history, Philly's a small town, you know, we're gonna run into each other later. Yeah, yeah. But, but see, there, there has to be an apology to the neighbors on Osage Avenue. No one ever said, because see, we now, I have to tell you guys that I never felt that the MOVE members, including the five children, could not have gotten out. I think there was a decision, and that's why people are calling it a cult. There was a decision to die as an act of, quote, protest, and that the world would then never forget John Africa and move. I don't think, I mean, that, that can't be taken seriously enough. The decision to die, I mean, to like, first of all, I mean, just that human level of like not, not living anymore, and then to put all these people um, children, in children, in harm's for them not to experience life, and for you to say that this is going to be um, the revolutionary moment, everyone's going to, the world's going to burn, and that being your objective, and then on top of things, because I'm just thinking, I'm trying to think about the ideological structure of move and how it's used, because it's like, it was interesting when you talk, or somebody said something, I can't remember what it is, but it's like, Black, it's, it, you know, it's using black people, you know, and, and, and kind of working against black people in the name of Absolutely. black people. Well, that's you know? the way it's always done. Hey. See, that's the way you do it. In the name of black people, because you have to appear to be freedom fighters in order to undermine the freedom of an oppressed group. That's when it becomes most effective. And if it is a cult, and if everybody believes that one person who allegedly only went to the third grade has all of the answers to all of the important questions of humanity. If that's what you believe, then you'll do anything because that person is as close to God as you get. It, yeah. And then see the other thing, the children. Somebody has to apologize. Bye-bye, Michelle. Yeah. I, and I'm not saying this to make you guys depressed, please. Yeah. Yeah, good, good. We're gonna, then we'll end it in a minute. Um, I think that, uh, I think that, um, you know, when people get through with something like this, then they, uh, especially children, they have a tendency to blame themselves. And um, that's, I think that's traumatic. And I think that that's why people leave the movement because they think it was their fault, not the organization yes. that let them down. Yeah. It, and, and also, um, yeah, I, I wanted to you know, transition also to criticism of anarchism, but uh, John Africa is, I was looking into the guidance or what he wrote, uh, cause I was curious and uh, a, I think it was a University of Pennsylvania student, maybe a white one, helped write that. Yeah. And there's always, you know, in 
anarchist cliques or collectives. There's always like a, an inner circle. It's never truly not non-hierarchical. There's always some uh, influence or decision-making circle going on. And um, and then also, you know, I, I, you know, been reading about this, you know, anarchist to fascist pipeline. And it seems that when uh, you know uh, a revolution fails, like like it did in you know Weimar Germany, communist power, uh, communist party fails to take power. That uh, you know, if fascism uh, comes, and you know, so if you're an anarchist, you're constantly, uh, you know, going off. Then. Yeah. yeah, and the greatest, I, I use the greatest quote crime of anarchism is its role in disorganizing the people. Yeah. And and you know, we're going to go through a long period of getting this thing right, and you guys have to be able to detect BS. Yeah, just to add to the conversation, uh, the fact of that kind of activism move, which also might deal with like the general political, you know, like I don't want to say parties, but just like advocacy groups mm -hmm. in the city who are particularly young, plus like Temple mm -hmm. and UPenn, but yeah. I was thinking Temple yeah. with Malefe yeah. and that kind of situation yeah. too. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. that's a, that's a question mm -hmm. in my mind. Yeah. Um, but yeah. can oh, I go to I'm Sunday? Sorry. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, please yeah. do. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, we have a lot of space to come into the Nebula. Yeah. I'll just read things. Yeah. Well, first, Speak up a little bit, Anne. Yeah, Nebula says teach tone. <laughs> 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 also, Nebula, like, wants to um, support what you were saying. Um, Who's that? Nebula. Yeah. She says, move was not a model of anything. It was not based on moral or upright behavior. If they wanted to be quote unquote back to nature, they would have lived on the land or farm. They would never have disturbed their neighbors. They would have never abused children by letting them die in a war zone slash burning. Um, and then Daniel says, LARPing, as Samir mentioned, is also a form of pedagogy. It wrongly teaches people that this is what it needs to be quote unquote left. And then Nabila says, reckless behavior from move, no way replacing the Panthers. Too late tone, it's on Facebook, lol. Nabila <laughs> 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 is like, I was asleep and I'm glad I woke up. I don't know how y'all got on this subject. <laughs> um, and then Mead Walker says, you often see among those who support revolution, the idea that willing, that that ideals, oh, that ideals alone are enough to make change. Please be very careful of people like that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. This is it. If I could just come, that a a belief system, yeah, is more important than an ideology. Now, by belief, you know what I'm saying by belief that, and that a leader who is the final arbiter of those beliefs. You see what I'm saying? And no one can really understand the beliefs, but the leader. And he is pure, he's a pure, as pure as it gets, because he only went to the third grade. And then people try to say preschool is like, oh, no, like, no. It's like not a cult in this way. No. You know, yeah. And you can see, and that's what uh, Samir is pointing out, you can see what it does to young people. Like Kevin Price 
and John Gilbride, yeah. who was murdered. You know, they can't, they didn't know what they were coming into. You know what I'm saying? They didn't know. And, and like Serafina said, this complex ideological terrain, I mean, it takes getting together once a week and then having ancillary groups reading on their own to try to figure all this out, you know? It is that complicated. You know, it is that comp and and now, you know, like you take the free school and, and so on, all of we went through the COVID and we're still halfway COVIDized because we can't all get together because of COVID. But even with all of this hard work, we're still running to keep up. Always on game, you know literally obsessed with the ideas that we talk about. I don't know, I don't know anybody here that thinks about anything else, but what we talk about in preschool, <laughs> you know, what do you think about other things? <laughs> she pointed at me, Doc. She pointed at me, Doc. Okay, but go ahead. But Serafina wants to talk about the third day. Okay, just to say briefly, um, Art right, as a revolutionary force in the struggle for freedom. That's Sunday. And that's from 1 to 6 p.m. Um, it will, I guess it'll kind of be like a closing of the symposium. And um, you know, you know, we could kind of do that. Yeah. And then we'll frame the question that we're posing about culture, um, tying it to the crisis into why um, or how like we can get closer to young people and how we can actualize the potential of the generations that are alive, basically, and yeah. young people in particular. Um, so, you know, me and Kathy will frame it and then we'll do some speaking basically uh, before a, a town hall at the end and then another like kind of remarks to Finally, you know, finish the symposium. So, uh, I guess it'll be my talk or that we're thinking about from last week's reading of the uses of the blues with Baldwin. And then Kathy will follow with the questions that we've been posing about pop art and art as a commodity and what we see, you know, as, you know, hip hop and the celebrity culture and those kind of things. Um, and, but, We've added to this uh, another kind of, uh, I want to say, it's not, I want to say dialogue, it's not exactly that because I'm still doing the paper, kind of, on uh, Robeson's um, essay, uh, A Word on African Languages, in which he recognizes the similarities between Chinese and African languages because he, one, is able to learn Chinese as easily as he is um, to do when he thinks about that. Um, and then Kathy will come in with, or Kathy or Michelle, she just left, about the relationship that, she, that I guess they personally, I would say, or they have um, to the Black radical tradition and what it means for the Chinese American, basically. Um, 
and then we'll have a discussion. Oh yeah. Okay, then she'll do that too. And then we'll have the town hall with Michelle and Jake on uh was it a need for a great cultural revolution of the people yeah oh yes and that will be a discussion closing and then leave yeah. six seven yeah. eight o'clock that night yeah no. yeah. <laughs> yeah it's going to take and as you can see the free school is being asked to do a lot but it's not beyond us at all mm -hmm. it's going to be something and um well, okay. Actually, um, if possible, can you can you guys put together the a program like yeah. that you can share with everyone? I mean, yeah, if if it's solid, <laughs> then yes. <laughs> we'll do that. Okay. And the good thing is, it looks like a GoFundMe is picking up. Yeah. And um, Catherine Blunt has played an unbelievable role in communicating with the diocese. Yeah. You know, with uh, Canon Wamsley. Uh, and once again, I mean, we're treated with such warmth and generosity by this church. And, you know, people don't have to do these things. No, we don't. Yeah, and when they do, you can only be so appreciative. And to be in a church is always something special. Um, so yeah. Okay. And it sounds like Lily Gay will come on Sunday. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, she was, I think especially um, the connection that you guys are making with the blues, how real revolutionary culture, but also thought and practice comes from the blues. Um, but then I think having your critique of the connection between pop art and hip hop, she was really excited about that. <laughs> yeah. And like she, she even is a super. She likes to stay in her house, but she's excited to actually maybe yeah. even come in person. Oh, yeah. Are there any other comments before we leave? No, I just I, wanted to remind everybody about the uh, event tomorrow. Oh yes, yes. That's uh, it's the third part of the three series event Tandadan Rajas are doing in India. So it's a panel uh, titled Brink of a New World System, the Collapse of the Western Rise of China. And it has Martin Jacques and Sudhinder Kulkarni speaking. And then there will be a discussion on Zoom with everybody on it. So it's at 8.30 a.m. for us uh, tomorrow morning. Yeah. Okay. Okay, folks, I guess we'll get ready to go. Could the people on the organizing group just get together for a quick thing? Oh, yeah.